Who's wrong and who's wronger? In this corner, followed by Millions James, the exploding unicorn, Breakwell. And in that corner, ignored by Millions, Steve Dash, Rinko Levers. Hey everybody, and welcome back to Wrong and Wronger, where you can rest assured the next 201 episodes will be exactly the same quality as the first 201 episodes. Wow. Yeah, I'll give that a second to soak in. <laughs> Why don't you? <laughs> but I am one of the co-hosts and the one that I know all of you tune in each week to see. I'm Dr. Steve, and he's the other guy that all of you tune in because sometimes you need to ruin your appetite when you're trying to lose a little weight. He is James the Exploding Unicorn Breakwell. And James, how are you doing today? I am here for another week of just sustaining your insults with good humor and class. Because we, we all know what my role is here. And it's uh, just to let it bounce off, man. I'm good. James, I have in my grubby hands. Ooh. And this, by the way, is the podcast where we talk about things that don't matter to anybody. However, James, they matter to more people than we thought they did. Oh, where, where are you going uh -huh. with this? I have in my grubby hand a list that I compiled of every listener who wrote. Now, there's no way to verify their information as being accurate. <laughs> However, there were five people who said, Whoa. I have listened to every single 201 episodes of Wrong and Wronger. Are you going to five. read off this list of honor and or shame? <laughs> well, Judy P. leads the list, of course. Obviously. Because Judy P. not only listens and or watch. No, I'm sorry. She doesn't only listen or watch. She listens and watches, which means she has us twice a week with the same show, James. I mean, I can't even imagine listening to our voices and then watching our faces to go with the voices. That would be <laughs> just going from disappointing to disappointing-er. Like, holy cow. She, is, <laughs> she has got to be up for sainthood somewhere there. Now, right below Judy P. is Susanna Mendoza, who is significant because she took time out of her day <clears throat> out of her day to write individually to each of us to let us know that she has listened to every episode. That was right. I, I told you excitedly that we had another one, and then I found out it was she was already on your list as well. So for a second, we had six people who had listened to every podcast, <laughs> but we are we are back to five. Now, honorable mentions, if we go win, place, and show, goes to JDB, who goes by MeOMI23 on Twitter. JDB insists that the show is posted in a timely manner every week, because if we're even a little bit late, and some weeks we have abandoned the show completely <laughs> for the sake of our own mental health, but sometimes we're just a little late in getting it up, JDB is on it, saying, hey, Where's my wrong and wronger? So we'll put him on the podium or her on the podium as well. I mean, that's uh, that's good that somebody actually cares. Although I will say that I, uh, when we're going to be late or when I'm going to be late for with my half of it, I actually message Judy P directly because I do not want to ruin her entire serious? evening. Yeah, I sent her a direct message on Twitter because as far as I knew, there was only one person out there waiting for the video. And sometimes I'm just tired, Steve. I'm tired of life. I'm tired of you. I, no, it's like... I just, I, I, I'm like, I'll be all the way upstairs in our bedroom, and I'm like, oh no, I didn't post that. 
do I really want to walk all the way down those stairs and post it right mm-hmm. now? And no, I do not. So I just mm-hmm. shoot Judy P a message and say, hey, go on to bed. It'll be up in the morning. <laughs> now, is Judy P gracious in accepting your explanation or does she do the <sighs> fine? One of those kind of moves. I think she's devastated, but it might be it might be performative devastation for our benefit. I I don't know that she actually has that much of a emotional stake in it. Again, I keep track of these, James, because another good name when you and I put a band together—performative <laughs> disappointment. All right. And then the other two on the list, I just don't know very well, or I'd be happy to give them some kind of accolade. But Jacqueline Schmidt and Deb Eschweiler also took time out of their day to write and say, hey, I, too, have listened to all 201 episodes of Wrong and Wronger, bringing the total to five. If you will indulge me for a moment of unjustified optimism here, it's possible Ooh. that we might have even more people who've listened to every episode, but they right, rightly feel shame at that fact and did not want to Ooh. point it out to us. So we have at least five people who are proud enough to admit it, but <laughs> we could possibly have a few more. I, I know you're out there, or at least I choose to believe you're out there, and your secret mm. is safe with me. You know, uh, whenever we record the next episode of 10 Minutes, it will be our 150th. So I believe that is a sesquicentennial, if I'm not mistaken. Wow, I did not know that term. We are piling up these podcast episodes for no gain. I just, it it doesn't help us, it doesn't help the audience, and yet we just won't stop. Hey, that's actually not true. Just this very morning, one of my clients said, did you know you have a podcast called 10 Minutes to Save Your Marriage? And of course, I did what I always do, which is no, not me, different Steve Olivas, I can't imagine. And he said, man, I've like binge listened to almost all of them. They're great. I played a few of them to my wife. Like, I think it's really helping. So he found value in what we do. Wait, let me backtrack for a second. He yeah. Were his exact words... Did you know that you have a podcast? Like, I'd been secretly recording you and you weren't aware that you were on there. <laughs> yes, I said, I have these private phone calls where I pour my heart out to Breakwell. Uh, no, he was talking. It, it, that may have been me summarizing for comedic <laughs> effect, but I there was an episode of The Commute that he wanted to listen to because he wants to go into a field that I had somebody on, uh. and apparently he did a Google search of me and was sort of surprised. So it was one of those spontaneous exclamations that may have come out a little bit incorrectly on his side, but it was pretty close to, do you know you had a podcast called 10 Minutes to Save Your Marriage? And I said, that wasn't me. No. I, uh, I hope 10 minutes was higher in the Google results than the commute I, I i choose to believe that's how that happened that you know we were like result number 700 on google and the commute was like 701 <laughs> well if you search my name i can't imagine 699 that would land above either of those man that how low does your life have to sink that you're googling steve olivas <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that exactly, James, I mean, but surely you've Googled yourself. Come I mean, on. unless it's like to like find out if you're on some sort of watch list, like dangerous persons, no fly list, <laughs> is Steve Olivas on there? I could get that. But beyond that, I think the less you know about Steve Olivas, the better. 
Well, uh, 350 plus episodes would suggest you feel the opposite. I don't think we can figure out what I feel at this point. I'm clearly just going through the motions and don't have the courage to end something that should be ended. But I think it's Stockholm Syndrome. You are secretly in love with me. That's what it is. Oh, you should hear the sigh every time I hear the phone ring at our appointed scheduled podcasting party. It just I shrivel up a little bit inside. But mm. I did actually have something I wanted to talk with you about today. So oh, I guess it's just sorry. as well that you didn't yeah. blow this off. Yeah. As much as we enjoy patting ourselves on the back for having five entire listeners, and again, kudos to us for that, uh, I think it's important that we discuss something that actually has some, you know, some parts we can argue about. And today I wanted to bring up cursive because I had to learn it in school. I never mm -hmm. write. Well, actually, I do sometimes use it a little bit if I'm taking notes. I mostly print, but sometimes I accidentally slip into cursive, but mostly to sign my name. But kids today don't learn cursive, which makes sense. But then I wonder, like, if they have to sign an important legal document, are they going to be, like, printing with third-grade handwriting? I just uh, I don't get it. I don't know how we can totally eliminate that. Uh, even when you use an electronic signature, it usually imitates cursive writing on there. And uh, can they just not read their own handwriting, or do they just guess and assume it means what it means? I don't know. What are your thoughts, Steve? Let me go back to something you said as you were opening this, James. If you were writing notes for our show, for example, like Steve said something that you would like to keep in, in perpetuity, you would print every letter? So I'm glancing out at a notepad that I keep for purposes outside this podcast because I have to date oh, never taken weird. one not note what? for this podcast for any reason. But hey, I have performative despair. Come on. Looking at my notes, it's mostly <laughs> well, it starts out print and then every once in a while if I'm writing fast, it kind of slips into cursive and then it goes back to print. That's I just I don't That's the point. Yeah, and I I think, you know, if I was really taking notes, like I prefer to use voice to text or I you know, take notes on my phone and a document I call Scratchpad. And so it's really, it's never ideal if I'm using pen and paper. But yeah, I start out printing. I absolutely do. And only slip into cursive if I have to go fast. Why do you do that? You know how little thought I put into uh, into my writing? Uh, right now is the most I've ever thought about it, the past 30 seconds of this conversation. <laughs> but I think it comes to, I, I don't like to write in general because I hold my pen wrong. So you're supposed to hold, let's see, I've got a pen right here. So you're supposed to hold it, and I know you can't see me, but you're supposed to like balance it against your, your middle finger, I think, somehow. And instead, I squeeze it between my middle finger, my index finger, and my thumb, like at the tip. I have like a death oh. grip on it. And it just, it, oh. it's a very inefficient way to hold it, but I am way too old to change how I hold my pen. Like, I cannot write the other way at all. My, wow. my illegible handwriting becomes even more illegible. It looks like I'm, I'm like a toddler trying to write with mittens on. So, yeah, I get this death grip. And so the less I have to write by hand, the better. Like at some point, yeah. I can't even read my writing. And I look back, I mean, I went to college in the dark days, which really shouldn't have been that long ago. But I remember the primary means, like, when you go to class and you take notes and pen and paper, it's like, how stupid and inefficient is that? I went to school in the age of laptops. Why did I not just type everything out? Or better yet, why did the professor not just email us a PowerPoint and skip the whole shebang? But you know what, that's, that's a whole different discussion. Let's stick to cursive for now. <laughs> 
Wait a minute. You can type fast enough <clears throat> that had you been taking notes during your English literature class or whatever you English majors take, you would have been able to keep up without uh, completely botching what you were typing? I can, I think like most normal people, I can type like five times faster than I can write. I type lightning. You're I write entire books. I spend, I spend my Sundays writing 2000 word news articles that I just create out of thin air. I mean, I, I type all the time. I live and die by my typing. And yeah, by comparison, pen notes are just horribly inefficient. And if I'm going fast, like if I look back, like half the time, even I can't read them. And that really defeats the purpose. And if I can't read it, like if I'm writing a message to somebody, they definitely can't read it. So that's that's a total waste. So let me ask you, boy, I got more questions popping <laughs> up. Quick basic one. Did no teacher ever try to correct your pen grip when you were a kid? I I, I went to a very permissive school early on. I don't know if there was one. Of those. I thought you were going to say promiscuous. Oh, Holy definitely Christ. not. Thank you for pulling that out. Of definitely <laughs> not promiscuous. No, no, that, right. a Catholic school was not so promiscuous. At least not till later on. Early age is very much not so. But uh, yeah, I, uh, I I don't know. It just I didn't realize till later on that I was holding it wrong. But uh, I think the other way, it seems like you just don't have enough control over the tip of the pen. It seems like you can just shift around all willy nilly. So I don't know that that's ideal either. I think that uh, I think both ways are bad, but my way is probably a little worse because it takes more uh, more finger strain. Wow. And then second question is, if you type something. Part of why I think writing is still, it, it still has utility is when you write something, you're using several different mechanisms in your brain at the same time. And so it creates redundancy and allows you better recall. If you type something and you write something, do you believe you would have identical recall? Absolutely. Because I mean, sometimes I don't even type it. When I do voice to text, I'm just speaking yeah. and it goes onto the page more or less in the right form. It probably gets it 95% right. But then I find that when I go through my second draft, I don't actually necessarily reread what I typed or what I did voice to text in the first draft other than just kind of glance at it. I almost retype it from scratch, but I have the confidence that it's there if I need it as a guide. So in that sense, I remember what I just said and put onto yeah. the page. So I, I think it works there. You know, I did, this just occurred to me. I was, I was briefly a newspaper reporter. And when I did that, I didn't use voice recording. I also took notes and that's a nightmare because I would get back <laughs> and I have to put this stuff in print then. So it has to be accurate, especially like the spelling of names and things. And I had to go and figure out what I wrote to myself while having a conversation with somebody. Like I was, I was incredibly unsuited for that profession. And I did it with the most archaic piece of technology possible, like short of just trying to carve what they were saying onto like a cuneiform tablet. I'm fairly certain you made that word up. And uh, so when you voice to text, do you write your books that way or do you, or, or your newsletters or your books? When you're writing a tome, are you voice to texting it? For the first draft, yes. The hard well, you write books now. Wow. You know. I mean the hardest wow. the hardest draft is just to get something on the page, to get yes. that basic yes. structure. And so, birth. yes, and the blank page is intimidating, and you're like, you, if you're typing, if you stop, you think, what's next? I got to get it perfect. But as you know from these podcasts, I can just talk. You can just talk. This is an ability <laughs> we have. And so, if I need to explain what needs to happen, I just flip open voice to text and I just 
talk. And half an hour later, I've got 2,000 words, and they're garbage words, but they're there. And then I move on to the next draft. It's like, hey, I've got a basic structure. I figured out what I wanted to say. It's not perfect, but the big ideas are there. And now I can go through line by line and actually make it good. And I think if I do a first draft voice to text, I think it probably cuts off half the time. So for my last couple books, I didn't do it with my very first book. Voice to text wasn't as much of a thing back then. But uh, yeah, I, I do the first draft for every single chapter, fiction and nonfiction, Dang. voice to text. And then the, the second draft where I really go through and make it make sense, uh, it comes together much faster. Dang. I don't know if I would be able to do that. I've never tried it, but that seems... Um that seems like it misses something that I do while I'm typing, and I can't articulate what that might be. If you used, like there's a if you used voice to text to summarize your ideas, you could you could quickly write an essay and articulate it perfectly with voice to text. You would be shocked. No, what I was having trouble articulating was what is happening when I'm typing oh. that would be absent if I am doing voice to text. Because the boy, oh boy, this is fascinating. I'm gonna try this at some point. I don't think, I don't think I'm brave enough to try it with a book. But I would be interested to know if I could write a column like this. And voice to text, you just do right on your phone, right? Like you don't even need another accessory. I did do it on my phone, and then uh, Android changed how the voice to text worked, and they it will only record for like sixty seconds at a time, so it's not as good. So my preference now is to use this microphone I have here at my computer. It picks up sound much better. It's much more accurate. So it depends on where I'm at. If I'm on the road, I'll use my phone. But if I'm at home, I'll use my desktop with the microphone uh, attached, and it seems to work much better. You know, I can picture you just sitting and talking to yourself while staring into space at one o'clock in the morning. That pretty much sums up my impression of your life, James. So when I'm on the road, uh, especially like if we're, if we're in a hotel or something, I wake up early on Sunday morning and I got to, you know, throw that newsletter together. And uh, in an <laughs> ideal situation, I will just go out for a walk. And I will hold up my phone and I will talk out the entire newsletter and then come back into my laptop and type it out. But like this weekend, we went to a baby shower in Missouri and we had a hotel room and my kids got split. Some of them were in my room and some of them were in my parents' room. My parents went off to church. My youngest or my second oldest kid was still asleep in the other room by herself. So I had to go in there and I couldn't wake her up with voice to text. So I went into this hotel room, closed the door and sat in the bathroom by myself talking to my phone. <laughs> <laughs> and talked out that whole first draft. It was super efficient. This is like a scene out of the movie RV with Robin Williams, except he typed his entire report on his BlackBerry. But yeah, I can see that. Just you in a bathrobe sitting on the toilet. I was. You know what? I'm going to strike that from the record. I was fully dressed. I was. I was decent. I am a. I am a prof professional here, after all. But what I didn't oh. do, and some people are crazy. This this still exists in the world. Some people, for their first drafts, still write them by hand. Like, you think you're old-fashioned because you type your first draft. But, like, mm -hmm. the really hardcore mm -hmm. people, they have to have that connection. It's not really writing unless, at some point, it exists on pen and paper. And I think they're crazy. I think that is the most inefficient way. And, actually, I was listening to a history book the other day about a guy who was, uh, I think it was... Uh, 
uh, the Lawrence of Arabia, he wrote down, he, yeah. he lost an entire draft of his book that he had written by hand, had one copy, hadn't had anybody else copy it down, just like hundreds of handwritten pages, gave it to a friend. The friend left a briefcase on the ground with it in there, and it disappeared. All of his work gone. <sighs> Like I can't even imagine. I I would be suicidal at that point. That is so much work, and I I just and that's that's not the only person that's happened to. But I mean, you imagine back in the day, you'd have to like pay somebody to recopy it by hand, and uh, that that sort yeah. of thing had to happen a lot. Like I I save twenty five copies of everything I type. I take zero chances. Yeah, I have uh, definitely built redundancy into how I save stuff now. In Stephen King's novel, The Dark Half, that was one of the things the main character would do. There was a particular kind of pad of paper and a particular brand of pencil, and he would write out his novels. The book never quite said how it turned into typewritten print that was actually published in the, the books that he wrote, mm -hmm. but I imagine there was some intern somewhere that was laboriously transcribing from his handwritten scrawl into the written word on some computer screen, whatever the archaic versions of those were. Yeah, that... Uh... You know, when I was in high school, another story, sorry, that uh, I was writing a novel and I had 105 pages written and this was back when floppy disks were literally floppy. They were uh, like five and a half or five and a quarter inches wide. I don't know if you even remember I seeing do. those, James. Okay, and uh, something screwed up. Like those things were fragile and finicky and fickle and any other F word I can think of because that was my mood. As soon as the disc was compromised somehow and I lost that book and that just, I lost the will to live for a while. That was a kick in the nards. And I never thought I'd write a book again. And yet here we are. Here I'm talking to an English major even. Oy vey. Do you wish you had gone back and, uh, and retyped it? Was it worth salvaging or was it garbage? It wasn't, uh, my idea was good. I mean, I was, uh, I was driving by then. I was probably 16. I don't know if I was 17 yet. And I think I had pretty decent ideas. I had probably read a hundred novels by then, horror novels, and it was a horror novel. And I think I was at least the structure of how the story arc goes, I had in my mind. And the, 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 um, uh, I don't know what the right word is here. What the story was about, <laughs> I think was a good idea too. So I, my challenge to you would be, why don't you resurrect that? I mean, you're on this big writing kick now. You write like three times as many books as I do. Why don't you, in between your other projects, write that horror novel? Just take another crack at it and, uh, and see soon, what happens. As soon as uh, one book should, of mine should be out by the end of June, once I get a little bit of cachet on Amazon, I'm going to publish a novel that I have written already that I think is very good. And then I have another one that I'm about 80 pages in that I pulled off an old computer I forgot I had even written and I printed it out and read it and thought, this is actually kind of good. So I'll probably finish that one up and then self-publish it too. So this book, if the idea, I'd have to kind of go through and reconstruct the idea in my mind, but it would be third in line. You are going to pass my book total in no time here, and that is a little bit upsetting, but at least you had to go through the trauma of losing an entire book. So I guess that balances, <laughs> that balances out the karma a little bit on that scale. I had no, I, I knew you were prolific with the nonfiction. I had no idea you had the other stuff. You know that uh, the idea of losing the book itself could be its own horror novel. I mean, that would be my nightmare. That would definitely make me wake up in cold sweat right there. I, <laughs> yeah, except I once, nobody could relate to that. Yeah, They're like, 
like, yeah, whatever. I once almost <laughs> lost a newsletter in the process of like copying and pasting it over. I did like control A oh, and no. control C and it somehow would have disappeared <laughs> in the transition. And that would have been probably four or five hours of work. And that was almost devastating. Luckily, I was able to pull it back. But I can't imagine losing 105 pages. It just uh, it I still remember the number. Yeah, it explains so much of what's wrong with you. Like you never really recovered from that trauma. You're you're here, but you're not here. I get it now. Man, I was a bright kid with a total upside potential back then, James. And then tragedy struck, and here we are. Yes, I, the the fallout of every bad decision and misfortune in your life is here on this podcast, which no fewer than five people have listened to every episode of. It could be more than five, but it's not less than five, and that's something. Uh, well, we don't know if the people were being truthful with self-reported data. I mean, every episode does have more than five listens. So... Mm. There's no, okay. th there are no episodes with four listens. If there were in a, was an episode with four listen listens, we could call them out. We would we would have them dead yeah. to rights. Yeah. But both the YouTube yeah. videos and the audio have at least yeah. five. Not much more than five, but they got five. Yeah. No, you're right. Well, there's no way to resolve this in any simple and quick manner or any manner that is going to be funny enough to earn a spot on this show because it's only <laughs> the best for our five listeners, James. But let me walk us out of here. Until we meet again, you have made it to the end of another episode that instead of Wrong and Wronger, we should have just titled it The Culmination. As James was quick to point out, this is the end point of every bad decision we've ever made. But until we make some more next week, this is Steve, Dr. Steve Olivas for James the Exploding Unicorn Breakwell saying thanks for watching. Thanks to the five of you for watching every episode. And until we meet again, always recall that two wrongs can make a right.